So we okay? Hi, my name is Buck Anderson. I'm the pastor of leadership development here at Grace and work with Trey. And he's asked me to fill in for him this morning as he's speaking in, in the larger service. And we're going to depart a little from the, the book of Hebrews this morning. And if you would, go with me to the book of Matthew. It's a perfect background for Hebrews. Uh, certainly, as you've seen, uh, the ex- excellencies of Jesus Christ as uh, recorded early in the book of Hebrews, uh, the best gospel to really go back and see some encounters with Jesus Christ that individuals had are really is really the book of Matthew. It's the most Jewish of them all, and it has a wonderful background that will help us look at two characters today that had encounters with Jesus Christ in such a way that I'm convinced that they understood some things about the Lord like we're reading in the book of Hebrews. These were guys and gals that had unusual insight into the person of Christ, yet they had it early in the ministry of Jesus. We, don't, we learn much more about him in the book of Hebrews, but let's go back and take a look at these two characters that have these encounters with Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew is an important book to do this study on. First of all, a lot of things going on there that really set up these two stories. The first thing is that the, the Pharisees are the main religious rulers of the day at this time. Now, Moses had written 613 commands. We know it as the Old Testament or the Mosaic Law. The Pharisees saw fit to add 1,521 more. It, and they made life with God just unbearable. And, and you see that image in Matthew 11 where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you're weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. They were weary from the rules that they had been laid upon them to to earn uh, their, their way to heaven, to have a relationship with the Lord. The Pharisees who had begun so well, they were the biblicists of the day, had taken folks off track. Yet that's what's going on when the ministry of Jesus Christ shows up. On top of that, their country had been overruled by the Romans. And a meeting like this might have been uh, guards outside. Our papers might have been checked, and the tension that would be arising from such a a, a situation where a foreign king whose Caesar was in essence God on earth, a pagan had now come into most holy Israel and was ruining it. And lastly, we see that predictably there would be tension, particularly tension against these Gentiles that had come into the land. That's the background of the ministry of Christ. That's what he calls a lot of folks out of this approach to the Lord and this approach to life. Now, if you'll, I want to go with you real quick through Matthew's gospel. We're just going to stop mainly at two points, but look at chapter one for me, uh, with me just for a moment, because uh, as we get there, I want you to remind you that this gospel among all the gospels is the most Jewish. It is written by a Jew to Jews. It is full of Old Testament allusions. It is full of Hebrew idioms. It is uh, written in order to convince the Jewish readers that Jesus, son of Joseph, was their long-awaited Messiah. Now, to do that, you've got to present this Jesus in a way that they would be used to having a Messiah presented to them. It's like he's being sent forth for their consideration. And they, uh, they will begin by reading in Matthew 1 a genealogy. You know, our eyes kind of cross and we go, what's the deal here? This is sort of boring. Why, why would you start off with a genealogy? You see, genealogies answer one question that must be asked. And that question was, who's your daddy? 
Because the essence of the genealogy answered, are you properly related to the proper people? And what we're going to see that he, he sets his image immediately by saying the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know those guys are reversed chronologically. Abraham lived 500 years before David, yet David is mentioned first. Because to be the Jewish Messiah, you didn't just have to be born from Abraham. You didn't have to just come from his son Isaac. You didn't have to just come from his son Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And one of those sons, Judah, further delineated the lineage. And through Judah came David. And in 2 Samuel 7, God had said, it is through David that the Messiah will come. All legitimate kings of Israel, including the king of kings, will must come from David. So in the presentation of Jesus Christ, Matthew is relating him first to David, then to Abraham. Keep that little phrase, the son of David, in mind. Now what's going to go on? He's going to have this this genealogy that shows that he's properly related. He's in essence a royal. He's he's blue-blooded. He is of the proper lineage. He's going to have a rather miraculous birth, I think you will agree, as the the text unfolds. His baptism is attended by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He he is sent out to the wilderness to be tested by the devil in chapter 4. And then he begins his longest sermon as recorded in the scriptures. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthews 5, 6, and 7, he's going to deliver this doozy of a sermon. And of all the things that he says in those three chapters... I think this is the most cryptic. This is the most insightful as to the type of radicalness of this person that we know as Jesus. He came on the scene that was ruled religiously by the Pharisees. There's racial tension. There's a foreign invader in our land. And he comes up and he stands in a synagogue and says, unless your righteousness exceeds or surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you ain't going to heaven. Unless you're more right with God than the most religious people on earth, you're not going to be going to heaven. Now, we understand the Pharisees as guys that were moving people away from the Lord. But to the average rank-and-file person that lived then, they were the epitome of religiousness. They were the the way to get to God. There was a particular group that I I love to tell this story because it's sort of a little snapshot of of the culture. There was a group called the Bleeding Pharisees. Now, this was just a small group of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were all men. You could be married as a Pharisee. And the Bleeding Pharisees, this sect of the Pharisees, had one verse that their whole life was geared around. Their whole deal in life was not violating the command that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. That was their life verse. They had T-shirts. They wrote it on their walls. That was what they were all about. Okay? And so everything they did was in in, in preparation so they would not commit adultery. And so they were so-called the bleeding Pharisees because they figured it out. Look, if I am all about not committing adultery, what can I do prior to that actual act to prevent me moving along that path? And they concluded, all right, when I'm in public, I'm never going to raise my head because I might look up and see a woman. And my thoughts might turn bad and I might lead to adultery. So I'm never going to look 
at a woman when I'm in public. So they spent their whole life in public walking around like this and were so-called the bleeding Pharisees as a result of their frequent collisions with low-hanging obstacles that would come and bop them on the head. They would be scraped on their arms and their knees because they couldn't see where they were going. And yet they wore that little crusted blood that here was here and ball guys like me would have scars on their head. And those were badges of honors. Those were like Boy Scouts and their merit badges. That was what I'm doing to not sin. Remember when the author of Hebrews will say, you haven't even reached the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. He may have had the bleeding Pharisees in mind. Now, we know that to be ridiculous. We know that to be silly. But those were the rulers of the day. So to make a statement like this would be equivalent to say, uh, you know, unless you're more righteous than, than John Piper, than Matt Chandler, than, than well, Trey Corey, of course, anyone that we might know, you're not going to heaven. And we would go, who then can be saved? And Jesus, of course, will come along and say, that road is out. I am the way. I am the road, the truth, and the life. Follow after me. In Matthew 7, at the end of the sermon, Matthew inserts sort of an editorial statement. Jesus had been speaking now for all of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. And just in the last couple of verses, he gives this little editorial statement. The result of the sermon was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority not as their scribes, and which were also members of the Pharisees. If you're not opposed to marking up your Bible, circle that word authority. It's going to be crucial as we take a look at one of the people that we're about to meet. He spoke not as their teachers, not as their scribes. He spoke as one having authority. And we come on the scene after that sermon into Matthew chapter 8, and we meet a person of great faith. You know, if you were to step back from the Bible and, and sort of guess the answer to this question, which might be, how many times did the, did the Lord tell the disciples, man, your, your faith is great, you're really maturing well? The answer is not once. Every time Jesus Christ evaluated the faith of his disciples, he said, oh, ye men of little faith. It's worse in Greek, it's one word comes across little faither. It's like being called a name, you little faither. And yet, we're going to meet only one of two people. We're going to meet them both. Only two people did Jesus Christ ever say, oh, you have great faith. And I think who they are might surprise us because they're going to be a couple of Gentiles smack dab in the middle of the most Jewish of all books in the four Gospels. Two Gentiles, a man and a woman, are going to have such insight into the person of Jesus Christ, much like we're seeing being revealed in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is going to evaluate and analyze their faith and say, that is a person of great faith. And from a teaching perspective, I, I can't help but note that in both encounters, the disciples are right there. It's like the, somebody comes in from the outside of our group and raises their hand and gets all the answers right. And we're looking around going, who's that guy? Who's that gal? They, they shouldn't know all this stuff, but they do. Our first individual is going to be seen in Matthew chapter 8 as Jesus had finished now uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he comes off uh, the mount and, and cleanses a Jewish leper. 
the first time I, I, I preached this, my youngest daughter was there and said, Dad, did, did Jesus give a leopard a bath? I said, no, no, honey, it's a leper, somebody with leprosy. And he sent them back to the priest to show that something big was now on the scene, that leprosy was being cured. And then he encounters what we know as the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy. He's a Gentile, of course, and, and presumed enemy of Israel. He has been sent under the orders of Caesar to occupy Palestine. He is a professional soldier. He has most likely risen from the ranks to that now of a seasoned officer. Like most centurions, he is a lifer in the Roman army. You see, at that time, the Roman army was divided into legions. 6,000 guys were in a legion. Now, to further get a a handle on 6,000 men, they divided those 6,000 further into 60 groups of 100. Each group of 100 was called a century. And one over that group of 100 was known as a centurion. Equivalent sort of to a company in our army, this would be a captain. He's one of rank and yet also ability in the field. He is a crucial member of the Roman army. And he has probably been all over the world, traveling the world for Rome's glory. Now, he's now stationed in the northern portion of Israel, where most of the ministry of Christ took place. We think about Jesus and we think about Jerusalem. He only goes to Jerusalem a few times as Jewish males were required to. Every major feast, the three major feasts, he would go to Jerusalem. But the bulk of his time was spent in the north, around the Sea of Galilee, in this village where Peter and Peter's wife and Peter's mother-in-law lived, most likely Jesus' headquarters, in this place called Capernaum. It's a Hebrew word, Kefer Nahum. Kefer means village. Nahum, like the Old Testament prophet, this was the village of Nahum. And it's a fishing and a port town, as you can see. A lot of commerce would go there. Uh, And uh, as a result, this individual has most likely been sent there uh, to make sure that uh, civil unrest would go uh, be kept to a minimum. There's a couple of roads that extended north through Israel, uh, and he was there to make sure with others that those were kept open. This would not be a glamorous outpost for him. It's sort of some of the places he'd been to. This isn't up there on the top as far as beauty. Uh, He would have referred to it probably derogatorily as Philistia which we would get our word from the Philistines. That's where Palestine comes from, the the home of the ancient Philistines. He's been sent there. And he is uh, over now, uh, most likely meetings like this and roads that should be kept open because what's important to realize about Israel, throughout its history, its most important contribution has been its geography. It's like a key Lego piece. If you want to connect Europe and Asia to Africa, On land, you have to go through this very narrow strip of land called Israel. To the east was desert. It was not, um, you couldn't travel it. Only connecting Europe and Asia to Africa was this little sliver of a piece of land about the size of our state of Vermont known as Israel. And that's why he's been sent there most likely to make sure that those roads remain open. Now he is quite a fellow. He is skilled in art and a savagery of war. He's seen many men die, probably many at the tip of his own sword. He is tough. He is battle-hardened. He lives in a world of rank, 
of order, of discipline, and authority. What Jesus had just been speaking about, what Matthew records in Matthew 7, just a few verses earlier, is now going to be affirmed by the author through the Roman centurion, a man also of authority. Now, let's, let's see what the deal is with this guy, because he's quite an interesting character. He, he doesn't come across, to me at least, as the way we might expect sort of the typical military individual to act. Jesus comes to Capernaum. The centurion comes to him, entreats him, saying, Lord, notice he calls him Lord. It could be a, a term equivalent to our sir. But he comes to him and says, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. Now, first of all, I found it interesting. By the way, the word servant, there's a a textual problem there. It could be either servant or son. It could be his own physical son, or it could be a servant, most likely his attendant, who's been with him all these many places with whom he has gotten very close, who's handled all his personal affairs, helped write the letters, helped outfit the the, the company of a 100 guys. This individual, whoever he is, is very precious to the centurion, and he's in pain. He's paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. From Luke, we know him to be about 20 miles away from this encounter. That's important. The distance of 20 miles is no small thing in a world in which you walked or rode an animal. 20 miles is a long day. You would invest an entire day to get somewhere. And this centurion's servant is some 20 miles away. Notice the description. He's paralyzed and suffering. Now, I love the Lord here. Think about all the things that we might have said if that was our deal. How did this happen? Where is he? Has he been to a doctor? What can we do? Notice the efficiency of of the discourse here. Guy says, I've got a problem. My servant is paralyzed, lying at home. Jesus says, I will come and heal him. I might be reading into it a bit, but I see a a sort of military dispatch here. You see, in in war, guys and gals in the military are taught, you got to speak clearly and you got to communicate quickly, unlike me. you got to get your words across because bullets are flying. We don't have time to have a lot of conversation. So speak quickly, wait for an answer, and move. You kind of see that there? i got a problem. He's lying paralyzed at home. And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. Now, before you turn to the next slide or you look at the next verse, just be the centurion. Take it into your own mind of someone precious to you, your brother, your sister, a dear friend, your mom and dad, a relative. And someone who you think can handle the problem has just said, okay, I will come and heal him. What are you going to do? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm calling a cab. Let, let's go get in the car. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. In essence, the Roman centurion is going to say, no, not necessary for you to come. Notice his thinking. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. You see the insight this person has into the person of Jesus Christ? In military uh, world, he realizes uh, like a captain in the army, he's in the presence of a five-star general, and it just ain't fitting for the five-star general to come over to the house of the captain. It's just not done. It's not necessary. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but your authority, your power is of such magnitude. Watch it. Your physical presence isn't even needed. Just say the word, and he will be healed. 
The centurion knew how far away his servant was. He knew 20 miles was nothing to the one he, with whom he had this encounter. And he met the Lord at his own level. He, he sized up the Lord in his full grandeur and asked him according to the way he really is. And we get the background of the Roman centurion's mindset here. He says, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one, go, and he goes. And I say, this one, come here. And he comes. And I say, this one, do that. And he does it. You see, sort of like it takes one to know one, this man of authority recognized a man of even greater authority. And he knows that based on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, he can get things done by just saying the word. And that was the mindset of the Roman centurion that prompted Jesus the only time the scripture uses this word marveled. But Jesus marveled. Disciples were right there. They probably got their hands on their hips going, who's this guy? How does he know all that? And notice the Lord says, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, truly, I tell you, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Probably gave a little look to the disciples when he used the word Israel. I tell you, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel, his group. This guys that have left and followed after him that have been learning on this three, three and a half year camp out with Jesus. They're not getting it quite to the extent that this Roman centurion. In fact, within 16 verses after this statement, Jesus will evaluate the faith of the disciples and find them wanting again. Oh, ye men of little faith, little faithers. I've not seen such great faith with anyone in Israel. Why? Because this centurion recognized the full authority of Jesus Christ. He says, many will come from east and west. I tell the centurion, go your way, be it done for you as you wish. And the servant was healed that very hour. We recognize the authority of Jesus Christ to be tantamount in the mind of the centurion. That's what he leaves behind for us. That's his insight into how to have great faith is to recognize the great authority of the great Jesus Christ. And Matthew will use this concept of authority to sort of weave a mini theme throughout the whole book. In chapter 7, we saw that Jesus was speaking as one having authority. The Roman centurion validates and affirms that. In chapter 8, I too am a man under authority. And the book sort of crescendos around the world, the word of authority in Matthew 28 Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. We like to quote, go therefore and make disciples. The previous verse is the setup verse though. Because all authority has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ, he has the right, the authority to tell us what to do. And so go, therefore, and make disciples is his command to us. Authority is a crucial lineage uh, that Matthew leaves behind, especially through the Roman centurion. Now, the book goes on to describe really an epic duke out between Jesus and the the Pharisees that will really reach a kind of a um, high point in chapter 12. Jesus will turn from the Jews and begin to start speaking in parables and including others. He's going to go feed 5,000. He'll walk on the water. He'll rebuke the Pharisees. And then it happened. They killed John the Baptist, his cousin. 
And for the first time in the ministry of Jesus Christ, I think to minister to his men, he leaves Palestine. And he goes into what we would call modern-day Lebanon, known biblically then as the district of Tyre and Sidon. And he goes there, I think, uh, to allow his men to recoup a bit, because what had begun so powerfully, what had begun so wonderfully in their lives, where they had left their homes, followed after this rabbi, was now turning against them. The nation's religious leaders were against them. Guides they knew, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, his own cousin had now been beheaded. They're going, man, what's the deal here? This isn't the way I thought it was going to be. I thought this Messiah was going to come in and kick the Romans out and we would be victorious militarily. That wasn't God's plan. He wanted to rule our hearts first. And that's what he's seeing uh, is coming forth from the Lord Jesus. And we're getting insight now into how do I have an encounter with this Jesus, much like the Roman centurion who lets us know he has great authority. We're now going to see the second person to whom Jesus Christ said, you have great faith. And she is found in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. Like the centurion, she also is a Gentile and represents Canaan, the long-standing enemy of Israel. She is a descendant of Canaan, cursed long ago in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, one of the relatives of that cursed people is now showing up in her home place, which is where Canaanites live in this district of Tyre and Sidon, and the disciples and the Lord Jesus encounter her. The Canaanites were known for their grotesque debauchery found in the Canaanite religion. Her ancient kin included the Hittites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Her cousins were at Sodom and Gomorrah. She lives now in this area in the upper left there around the city of Tyre. By my count, the second most cursed city in the whole Bible, only to Babylon. Tyre was sort of a Vegas, New Orleans of its day. It was a seaport Rich commerce went on. Also, it was a place for lonely and weary sailors after it came out of their voyages. And so all the things that might accompany that, Tyre had as well. And as a result, God was displeased with the behavior of the people in that city. It comes out of this place called the district of Tyre and Sidon. Sidon was the firstborn of Canaan, as seen in Genesis chapter 10. The background of this is rich. And so for the Jews to be there outside of Israel, sort of recovering from their time uh, and this upsetness that they would have with John the Baptist is in very much in the background. And she's going to come out and immediately encounter them. Now, there's going to be a, a neat little conversation between she and the Lord. Sometimes the Lord's not going to say anything. But I think the, the, the teaching point and the, one, and the group that we might best identify with are the disciples, okay? The disciples now have kind of been rocked back on their heels by the death of John the Baptist. Jesus has taken them away. I mean, they're on vacation, okay? They're going to get a little rest. They're going to pull back from the ministry for a while, and they're going to have in their mind a background of what she is going to be like because she is a Canaanite. They're going to profile her. And they're going to be wrong in their assessment of her. And it becomes one of the greatest teaching moments in all the scripture. Where the least likely individual can often do the greatest thing. The least likely individual can often be the one who gets it just 
perfect, just great. And that will be the case here, like we saw with the Roman centurion, a least likely character to have his faith evaluated as great. She too will have her faith evaluated as great. But let's see how we get there. They withdrew into this district of Tyre and Sidon, again, modern-day Lebanon, up on the Mediterranean coast, north of Israel. And immediately, there's no, I love the way the, the Bible writes, or the, Matthew writes. He doesn't, doesn't tell us all the things that could have happened. He just says, immediately, this Canaanite woman came out and began to cry out. Notice her words carefully. Have mercy on me, O Lord. What's next? Son of David. Precise messianic term that we first saw in Matthew 1. Remember? The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. She knew who he was. She knew precisely who he was. And she begins to entreat him, much like the Roman centurion who had someone dear to him infirmed. She has a daughter who is cruelly demon-possessed. Now, the profiling would have started about right now in the minds of of some of these good northern Jewish boys, guys like Peter, who would have been walking around going, okay, what do we got here? We got a Canaanite. Mm -hmm. We know their background. They're cursed. Sorry, ladies, but a lot of times back in the day, ladies weren't treated with the respect. Everywhere the Lord Jesus went, he elevated the right and place of the women in his ministry. But often in the background would have been this, and she's a woman. Notice she has a daughter. And to affirm it all, look, her daughter's got a demon. Not just a demon, she's cruelly demon-possessed. To the disciples, she is the epitome of weakness and spiritual filth. And what are we doing talking to this person? And why doesn't she leave us alone? That will be the tension that's going on here. Notice, Jesus, ever the master teacher, just sort of steps back. Now, the verbs are helpful here. The verbs are in the imperfect tense, meaning the action is not completed. She keeps entreating, Lord, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Oh, son of David, help me. And the, the disciples are going to say, Lord, they came to him and kept asking him, Lord, send her away. Lord, help me. Lord, send her away. Lord, help me. Lord, send her away. And he's just kind of watching this encounter go by, eliciting faith from the woman and building up the opportunity for the disciples to learn. We see here, he finally speaks. And he's going to issue two images now for us. The first one is going to be that of sheep with his shepherd, okay? And he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now that fits to the Jew first, but also the Gentile. But his primary ministry was to Israel. And so he's kind of clarifying his his ministry to see what she thinks about that. He didn't say, I'm not going to help you. He simply reminds her that my primary purpose on earth is to minister to the Jews. And he clearly recognized her not to be one. She doesn't buy that for a moment. She keeps after it. Lord, help me. Notice she bows down in front of him. The disciples are seeing this. Then he changes the imagery. And here's the, the key moment in the story. He he now moves to that of a dinner table. He says, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, he's not calling her a dog. In fact, he uses the word kune. We get our word canine from this word. Mark will tell us he uses the term for a small dog, a little bitty kind of nine-pound little dog. We got a little Bichon freeze that stands under our, our dinner table. And when she gets a little impatient waiting for food, she just goes... 
She's a quiet, humble little beggar, but a beggar nonetheless. And you'll throw her something every once in a while. And she, what he's saying is, look, it's not right anywhere to prepare a big meal and, and serve that meal up to the mom and the dad and the brothers and, and, and the children. And instead of taking that meal for the child, intended for the child, throw it to the dog. She just don't do that. And the, and the woman goes, uh, yes, Lord, you're right. But don't even the dogs that are under the table feed on the crumbs that would fall from that kid's plate? You see, she recognized something that people of great faith recognize. So I don't, need the, I don't want the kid's meal. I don't, I don't need the whole meal. But if it was from a meal that you prepared, it is of such value. It is of such sufficiency. It is of such sustenance that just a crumb would be enough for me. Now, the Lord doesn't give us his crumbs, but his crumbs are good enough if that's all we had. And she recognizes. See, the greatness of the baker, if you will, produces great bread. And even the crumbs from that great bread is good. And she casts that image from little, the little dog, the little kid, all the way to the greatness of the sustenance and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. He marvels again, or in this case, answers, uh, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. The Roman centurion reminds us of the great authority of Jesus Christ. The Canaanite woman reminds us of the great sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The parallels are obvious. We've gone over them. Only two people that ever had those words come their way were Gentiles. They both had one in great need. One was a son. One was a daughter. One was paralyzed. One was demonized. And yet they leave behind for us two nuggets that people of great faith recognize the great authority of Jesus Christ, the great sufficiency of the Son of David. You see, the word aman, which is the normal word that we get our word faith from, has the idea in Hebrew of strength, of stability, of sureness. It literally means it is so. When we say amen, we're tweaking that just a bit to make it a request. Let it or may it be so, all that I just said. Faith is the sizing up of something based on its stability. It's sureness. When we were building this stage, I came over often to see how it was going on because as uh, part of my job functions at the church's operations, and I wanted to make sure that it was firm and steady. It would support guys like me walking on it. Those chairs, you probably didn't ask to see the architect, but you checked it out. You said, there's four legs. It's going to hold me up. We place our faith in things all the time. Why? Because we size it up to be sure. We size it up to be reliable, dependable. Same is found in the New Testament equivalent of the same concept. Pistuo is the word in the New Testament for faith. In Hebrews 11, you'll see faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When we have faith, we consider something based on its reliability and dependability and place our weight upon it. This picture, frankly, haunts me. I am afraid of heights. I'm a little nervous on three steps, to be honest, but there are 100 stories above the ground during the building of the Chrysler Building in New York City in 1933. If you know the city, behind them is Central Park. Off to the left is the Upper West Side. And these guys, these iron workers, are taking a little break. 100 stories up in the air. I don't know if you look closely. I don't advocate smoking, but this guy's over here getting the light, okay? 
Yeah, I went to that service and that guy said we should smoke. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that guy's smoking. This guy's reading a newspaper. This guy's just looking out. Why? Because <laughs> every day they handled that iron. Every day. They saw it hoisted up as the building rose. Every day, they were the guys that turned big bolts and big nuts on the end of those bolts as it came into the corner beams. And they saw that it was sure and true, and it was able to hold them up. They were so overwhelmed with the strength of that metal, that steel, they didn't even think twice about putting their weight upon it. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt it could hold them up. This scene was, I heard, was actually staged uh, after they got the first one. I don't care. These guys are lying down on beams 100 stories above the ground. I mean, if one of them moved, they'd all fall. They're all kind of connected together. They're taking a little nap here, 1,000 feet. And this one is a beautiful picture, at least to me, of the Christian life. What are they doing? They're resting in the sure stability of the person of Jesus Christ. They're resting on the sure stability of powerful iron. But like them, we can rest in the sure ability and stability of the person of Jesus Christ. He's not going to drop us. We're not going anywhere. Just like the three-year-old who stands on the, on the counter in the kitchen and, says, uh, and jumps to Daddy, Daddy, catch me. Daddy can catch him because Daddy has that ability at that time. Those kids get a little older. They don't get up on that counter and jump to me anyway. Let me give you a couple things to chew on this week, okay? I think it's important to realize that the Lord reserves the right to evaluate our faith, okay? Now, this is the faith of believers. How are we doing in, how are we doing in this walk of faith? Disciples, little faithers. Roman centurion, Canaanite woman, people of great faith. Both characters exhibited great insight into the person of Jesus Christ. They saw him. Check it out, the way he really is. Not the way they made him up, not the way they've always thought, but the way he really was. And then as a result, they were able to recognize the reality that was before them. That's the son of David. That's the Messiah. And he has the ability to do these things. Both characters adjusted their capacity to believe in accord with this now recognized reality. It's like they had an epiphany. I I see him now fully the way he is. I will now believe him in accord with the way he really is and believe him for great things. Both characters were intentional in their dealings with the Lord. They brought business to God and dealt with him directly for they had the needs of others as more important than their own needs and they were thus able to be intentional. And lastly... I had to ask myself this question. Will I ever cause Jesus to marvel at my faith? You know, when you marvel, your, your head kind of goes to the side, and your eyebrows kind of go up, your, your mouth kind of goes open a little. Just marvel. Wow, how can that be? Are we doing things that cause him to marvel? And the answer is going to be, let's pursue him the way he really is, a person of great authority and of great sufficiency. And adjust in accord with that reality. Would you pray with me? Lord, thanks so much for these men and women and their love for you. I pray that you might guide us this week and give us opportunity to think about these things throughout the week. To go back and search through Matthew and see if these things are so.
Help us sort of carry around these two characters with us, Lord. This soldier that lives in a world with which we may not be all that familiar, yet he instructs us about the wonderful, powerful authority of Jesus Christ. Help us say yes, sir, to you more, Lord, we ask. And Canaanite woman in her, in her state of being an outcast, yet this little one did such a great thing. The least likely now has taught us the great sufficiency and sustenance of Jesus Christ, that his crumbs are enough, but Lord, you're a God who gives us the whole loaf. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Help us all to eat fully, Lord, of the things of God the way they really are. Help us see you in your fullness and the way you truly are as revealed in the word of God. I pray for each of us here, Lord, that you might meet us where we are. Help us be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for letting me come today, guys.